this evening is from Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read the first 13 verses. It's around page 1016 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came into his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What was his mission? What was he all about? I suspect if you ask 10 different people on the streets this question, you get perhaps 11 answers. But did he come? I still get sick. You still get sick. The diseases, the cancers that strike people down strikes both Christians and non-Christians alike. So was that his mission, to bring healing? Or was it something else? Did Jesus come to show his power over creation? I mean, last week in the story that we looked at, Jesus showed his power. He calmed the storm and the waves immediately by his word. Was that why he came? To show his power to this world, his power over creation. Again, if that was so, you probably have to again admit that Jesus was a father. What good is that for me now, calming the storm and the waves 2,000 years ago? What good is that for us today? Even in this past week, in Chile, they, they experienced a, a massive uh, earthquake. <coughs> the natural disasters that come here and there, the volcanoes, the tsunamis, the earthquakes, they affect both Christians and non-Christians alike. So what good is all that? What was the mission of Jesus? What did he come to do? Well, as we come to this passage, if it's not yet clear from our study of Matthew so far, as we look at this passage, this will come crystal clear. Why Jesus came, what his mission was all about. The smoke is cleared away and it comes into sharp focus. Why he came. Because in our passage today, Jesus in fact tells us why he came. And so what happened? Let's have a look at our passage. We come to our first story. And when you read of this story... When you think about it, it's actually quite unexpected what happens. So have a look at verse 2 with me. Some men brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a mat. Now what would you expect Jesus to do at that moment? He's done many wonderful miracles so far, many wonderful healings so far, and he's in fact already healed a paralytic. 
And so we know that Jesus can in fact do that. The friends, as they were bringing their paralysed friend along, they're probably thinking, well, this is, this is our chance to get our friend healed so that he might lead and live a normal life. And what would have been going on through the mind of the paralytic as he was being carried along on the stretcher towards Jesus? What would he have been thinking? We can just sense that he was getting a bit excited as he was getting closer to Jesus. He was, he was filled with hope. His heart was race, racing. His, his stomach it was filled with butterflies, like the first day, you know, that feeling. Because he's thinking, as he gets closer and closer to Jesus, he knows that his life will change. And so what happens? Well, in verse 2, Jesus saw their faith. It's interesting there, isn't it? He saw their faith, the faith of the friends. And then he goes to the paralytic and says to the paralytic, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, isn't that strange? Why would Jesus say that? Didn't Jesus see that this guy was paralysed, lying on a mat? Why did Jesus say such a thing? And what would have been going on through the mind of the paralytic when Jesus said that your sins are forgiven? I wonder whether he'll be thinking, is this some sick joke? Can't you see, Jesus, that I am paralysed? I need help here and you tell me that my sins are forgiven? Is this some sick joke? Or what about the crowds? What would they have been thinking? Well, we actually get to listen in on a conversation between the teachers of the law. You can just imagine they're standing on the side, their arms across, and they're chatting with each other. And they're saying, this fellow, this fellow, it's probably a nice way of saying this, this bloke or this punk, this, this guy is blaspheming. Now, why would they say that? Why would they accuse Jesus of blaspheming? Well, it's because if you, if you think about it, they're, they're thinking, this guy, Jesus, has no right to forgive sins. He has no right to forgive the sins of the paralytic. You see, the, the right to forgive sins remains with God. And so this man, Jesus, was assuming the role of God in forgiving sins, and that's blasphemy. Now, if you think about it, it actually makes some sense. You see, the right to forgive sins, uh, it, it's in the ballpark of the one who has been offended. And so you can only forgive the sins that you were uh, offended by. So, for example, if, just say, Owen here punched Jesse for no reason, okay? And I come in the middle and I break it up. I say, sit sit down, boys. And and I say to to Jesse, you're forgiven. You, You think, are you for real, John? You had nothing to do with that. You had nothing to do with that. In fact, it's actually Owen who needs to be forgiven, right? You see, the, the one who can't forgive is the one who's been offended. The offended party needs to forgive. Now, a similar situation like this, but a lot more serious, happened towards the end of World War II. Now, there was a Jewish man, this guy, by the name of Simon Weisenthal, a Jewish man. He was asked to come in by a young SS Nazi soldier. And he was asked by this soldier before he died, to forgive him. So the Nazi, the soldier, asked the Jewish man to forgive him. And that's because this soldier, he he committed some heinous crimes during his life. He did some terrible things. There was one incident where he, he had 300 men, women and children killed. They were put into a small house, the house was burnt, and those who were trying to escape, he gunned them down. So this soldier, he felt guilty. He was tormented by his guilt. That crime haunted him. 
And so before he died, on his deathbed, he asked for this Jewish man and he asked this Jewish man, Simon, can you forgive me? Will you forgive me? You see, he wanted to experience forgiveness before he died. Now, what did this guy say? Simon, he heard the soldier asking for forgiveness. Well, he actually said nothing. He said nothing and he left. Now, later on, this man, he put together, he put his thoughts, his dilemma into a book and he wrote about it and and in summary, he pretty much says, I had no right to forgive that Nazi soldier. You see, the offended party were the six million Jews who died. They were the ones who who were offended and they were the ones who could forgive. But because they were all dead, there's no forgiveness for the Jews. And no forgiveness for the Nazis, I mean. No forgiveness for them because the offended party was dead. And so you see, forgiveness, the, the offering of forgiveness, is only possible if the sin is against you, if the crime is against you. And so what right did Jesus have to forgive the sin of this paralytic? Did he have a right at all to do that? Well, you see, from the Bible's perspective, it is right that the offended party is the one who can forgive, but what was missing in that thought was that according to the Bible, the most offended party in all crime, in all sins, is in fact God. God is always the ultimate offended party. All sin, all crime against everyone and anyone, God is the ultimate offended party. It's a bit like this. If you think about this on a small scale, on a miniature scale, when my kids, when they fight with one another, when they hurt one another, they're they're hurting one another and their, their crime, their sins are against each other, but it's not really just against each other, is it? It's in fact against me as their father as well. It's actually offensive to me when they fight because under my household there are, uh, there's a particular way they are to live. They're not meant to do that. But when they do fight, they're not just hurting each other and it's not just crimes against each other. It's actually against me as well. I am offended by their hurt of each other. Now think about that on a cosmic scale. God created all humankind, made us in his image. When we hurt each other, when there, is, when there are crimes against each other, when we sin against each other, God is offended. Ultimately, God is offended. All crimes is against God. And so in this story, what do we read? Well, there's this man, Jesus, who comes. He comes from heaven. He comes from God. He comes with the authority of God. And he says to this man, this paralytic, with the authority of God, your sins are forgiven. You see, he did have the right. He had the right to forgive sins. But now, what was the sin of this paralytic? What crime did he commit? I mean, when you're paralysed, you can't really do that much. And so, what crime did he commit? Well, you see, this is how we often think about sin. We often associate sin with the things we do. We often associate sin with breaking rules, breaking commands, breaking laws. But you see, that's not exactly the heart of what sin is. It's a messy word. It's a sort of a, a dirty word, isn't it, sin? But the heart of sin is the dark problem of the human heart. You see, sin is like this heart disease that all humanity has, a heart that is against God, a heart that is rebelling against God, a heart that dismisses God, disowns God, a heart that rejects God. That is what the heart of sin is. It's a heart problem. It's like a disease. 
But the symptoms of that are the things we see. The symptoms of that are the things we see when we hurt each other, when we gossip, when we lie, the violence, the greed. They're the symptoms, but they're not the disease. And so this man, this paralysed man, his biggest problem was not that he was paralysed. That's a massive problem. But that was not his biggest problem. His biggest problem was that he had this heart disease as well. The heart of sin is the problem of the heart. And so we see here why Jesus came. He did not come just to heal. He can do that. But he did not come just to heal. We see his mission here. He came to forgive sins. He came to do deep surgery, to fix up the problem of the human heart and to forgive sins. Now, in this story, how do we actually know that Jesus actually has that authority to forgive sins? Well, here in verse 5, Jesus actually proves that to us. Jesus challenges those who are there listening. He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? So what do you think? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Well, if, if you think about it, they're both actually impossible for human beings. For any one of us, it's actually difficult. We can't do that. We can't forgive sins like we're God. We can't say to a paralytic, get up and walk and expect that to happen. Actually, both difficult and hard. But you see, from the perspective of those standing there, from the perspective, the standpoint of the sceptic standing there, to say your sins are forgiven is perhaps easier because you just say it. There's no tangible proof that you need to show immediately. So to say your sins are forgiven is perhaps easier. But to say get up and walk, it means that you have to prove that straight there and then. To say to a paralytic, get up and walk, well, you have to show that. So in their mind, they're thinking that's harder. And so from their perspective, to say get up and walk is harder. So what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus did the harder thing. Jesus did the harder thing to prove that he can also do the easier thing. And so look at verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. And that's exactly what happened. So why did Jesus come? What was his mission? Why did he come to earth? Well, it makes clear here, it was not just to heal, it was to forgive sins, to deal with the problem of the human heart. A mission that still goes on today. A mission that in fact still makes a difference today, the forgiveness of sins. A mission which fixes up the dark and deep and broken human heart. A heart that is against God. That is the mission of Jesus. Now if that's the mission, who did he come for? Who was his mission focused on? Well, this we need to look at the second bit of this story. So if we have a look at this, and you think about this, it's actually quite unexpected what Jesus does, who he focuses in on, who he hones in on. So who did Jesus come for? Well, look at verse 9. He says, it says here, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. It was a tax collector that Jesus asked to follow him. Now, we probably don't, think, don't get the sense of why that is so, so scandalous. We probably miss miss that because we're in a different time and in a different culture. But you see today our tax collectors, our lawyers, our accountants who work for the tax office, they're doing a legitimate 
they're in a legitimate profession. They do a good work. There's nothing wrong with it. But you see, in the first century, the, the tax collectors, the Jewish tax collectors, they were despised. They were hated because they were self-serving, they were greedy, they were parasitic traitors. And that's because the Jewish tax collectors, they worked for the Roman overlords. They worked for the Gentiles against their own people. And so what they would do was they would extort money from their own people, they would take a big cut, line their own pockets and pay the rest as tax. And so they would, in a sense, still get filthy rich on the poverty of their own people. I can't, um, I'm just thinking about, you know, the type of profession where we have that sort of hatred towards. What might the modern day profession where we sort of dislike be? Perhaps the, the drug lords or the slave traders. Or just imagine a Jewish man during Second World War betraying his own people, telling the Nazi soldiers where the Jewish hideouts are. That man will be hated. And so the tax collector, they were hated by their own people. But yet, it was a tax collector, Jesus called. That's scandalous. That, that is just unbelievable. And you can have a look here. Look at verse 10. Who does Jesus hang out with? Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Jesus hung around these sinners, these tax collectors, the scums of the earth. And so in this story, you see the Pharisees, they're just, they're just dumbfounded. What's going on here? They could just not get their heads around why Jesus would do such a thing. And so they go up to the disciples and they, and they say to them, your master, he calls himself a man from God. And why does he eat with these people? Does he not know that these people are the baddies? They're the scumbags. They're the greedy ones. They're the selfish ones. You know, we're the righteous ones. We're the ones who go to the temple and offer sacrifices. We're the ones who follow the laws of Moses. We're the ones who are righteous. If your master is really from God, can't he see that these are scumbags? But you see, in this story, Jesus overheard what they said. Look at what Jesus said. Verses 12 and 13. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? You see, that is, in a sense, the mission statement of Jesus. You see, the mission statement of Jesus is not what we would expect. Jesus left his glory. Jesus left his place in heaven. He's come down to earth and who does he call? He doesn't call the righteous. He doesn't call the healthy. He doesn't call the holy ones. He doesn't call the goodies. He comes after the weak. He comes after the outcasts. He comes after the sick. He comes after the sinners. If you're a Jewish person reading this, that would be scandalous. But Jesus tells us why he does that here. You notice there that he actually told off the Pharisees. He says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, it's a bit like the parable between the tax collector and the Pharisee. Do you know that story? Well, the the Pharisee, what does he do? He goes to the temple and he prays to God about himself. He says to God, God, I'm so glad I'm not like those other men. I'm so glad I'm not like the sinners. 
like the robbers, like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give, I sacrifice. That's, that's the Pharisee. But yet the tax collector was also there. He could not bear look up to heaven. He looked down but he beat his breast and he cried out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now in that story, who do you think was justified? Who walked away justified before God? Well, it was the sinner who pleaded for mercy, not the self-righteous Pharisee who offered his sacrifices. And so that's why Jesus says here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And if you think about it, I think this is the way we like to work as humans as well. I'm thinking about this and I think this is how I see myself working with my own kids. See, just say, for example, if Esther, my daughter, was to disobey me in some massive way, she was to hurt me in some massive way as her father, some major way, like dating a boy without telling me or something like that. No, it has to be perhaps worse than that. Betray my trust. Dishonours me in some massive way. And she knows that. She knows that she's hurt me, she's done something wrong, but then she decides, oh, I'm going to make this up to Daddy. I'm going to make my bed every day. I'm going to go to sleep by 8pm every day. I'm going to clean my room. Surely when Daddy sees that, he's going to be happy with me. Surely he'll be pleased. But will I? Will I be pleased if she just does that? You see, if I've been hurt in a massive way, deeply by my own daughter, that's not what I want from her. I don't really care whether she does a bed or not. What I want for her is for her to come to me, to recognise her fault and to ask for forgiveness. And as her father, I'll be so ready to offer that forgiveness because I so deeply love her. I'll be over the moon to show mercy. What I want is mercy, not sacrifice. And so God says here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So do you see that? What was the mission of Jesus? Well, it's not what we would expect. Jesus did not come just to heal the sick, just to heal the paralytic, but Jesus came to forgive sins, to fix the deeper, darker problem of all human hearts. And who was his mission to? Who did he come for? Well, that's also unexpected. He did not come for the healthy and the righteous. You see, when you call yourself righteous, you're actually excluding yourself from God's mercy. You're saying, I don't actually need God's mercy. But Jesus did not come for those people. He came for the downtrodden, the broken, the sick, the sinners, those who recognise their poverty and they plead to God for mercy. Now, what do you think all this means for us today? That's the two stories. We see the mission of Jesus and we see who he has come for. What does this mean for us today and what difference does it make? Well, I think if you actually understand this story and understand it well, you understand the mission of Jesus, why he came and what he came for, it will actually change our lives. It will turn our lives upside down. And let me tell you why. Firstly, we'll see this, that there is no sin too grave. If you understand this story, you actually see that there is no sin too grave. That is, there is no sin too grave, so great. There is no sin so heinous, so wretched, that will stop God from forgiving us. That is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. There's actually nothing in my life. Thinking about my life in the past, what I've done in the past, 
and perhaps what I will do in the future. There is no sin that I've committed or will commit that will keep me out of reach from God's forgiveness. So if God can forgive in his story this selfish, greedy, backstabbing tax collector, well, God can forgive the selfish, greedy, backstabbing me. You see, if I am like the tax collector and I search my own heart and I see my brokenness inside and I see my own darkness, my own bankruptcy, my own poverty, you know, there are times when I think about the things I've done and it's just so foolish, so silly. How could I ever do such a thing? But if I am like that tax collector, I turn to God and plead, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. <coughs> what do you think God's word is when you plead to God for mercy? What are God's words? Well, God's words, what Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but because there is no sin too grave that God won't forgive, As a Christian, I find that tremendously liberating, tremendously freeing. You see, there's nothing that will cripple me. No sin will cripple me because I know that I am forgiven. Whereas if I was not forgiven, then the sins, the the burdens upon me would be unbearable. But you see, there is no sin too grave that God won't forgive. Secondly, we see this. There is no life too precious That is, there's no life too precious that is not worth denying, putting down and following Jesus. You see, as good as your life might be, as good as our life might be now, as cruisy as it might be in life, as privileged as our life might be, there is no life too precious that it is not worth denying to follow Jesus. Just think about Matthew's case in this story. Imagine what it would have been for Matthew. He was a tax collector. He knew that. He was filthy rich. He would have been the richest person with the biggest house in the neighbourhood. Had the fastest camel. This guy did well. But what did he do? What did he do when Jesus asked him, follow me? He got up and followed him. He left his possessions. He got up and followed Jesus. Now what did Matthew get for all that? He left his career. He left his house. What did he get for denying himself and following Jesus? Well, he got to follow Jesus around for three years. He got to move from home to home like some poor backpacker. What else did he get? Well, he got to write this gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. What else did he get for following Jesus? Well, he got to die a martyr. You think... What's so good about following Jesus? doesn't sound that nice at all. It sounds, in fact, quite sad. But you see, because Matthew did not see his life too precious to deny and to follow Jesus, Matthew, like anyone else like him, who denied their life, who follows Jesus and believes in Jesus, will be richly welcomed into the home of God. You see, if we follow Jesus in this life, we follow him into the next And so there is no life too precious that it is not worth denying to follow Jesus. And now finally, there is no cost too great. That is, there is no cost too great that God would not sacrifice it for our sake. You see, when Jesus asked the the question, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, 
You see, from their perspective, they're thinking, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. They're just words. You don't have to prove it in any tangible way straight away. But you see, from God's perspective, from God's standpoint, to say your sins are forgiven is far, more, far harder, far more difficult, far more costly for God. Just think about it. If God was to say to someone, get up and walk, that would have been a piece of cake for Jesus, for someone to stand up and walk in. God created the universe. That is easy. But for God to say, your sins are forgiven, that is hard. In fact, there's nothing harder for God than to forgive sins. Nothing more costly to God than to forgive sins. You see, for the paralytic to have his sins forgiven, for the tax collector to have his sins forgiven, for any of our sins to be forgiven, what's needed there? It required the death of Jesus. It cost his life on the cross. But you see, there is no cost too great. Even God's very own son, he would give him up for us. So what's the mission of Jesus? Well, you see that it's not just to heal. It's not just to display his power. It's a mission that started then and it continues today. A mission to forgive sinners their sins, to forgive us our sins. And what difference does that make? What difference does knowing that make? What difference does believing that make? Or every difference in life, from this point on into all eternity, it makes all the difference. Let's pray.